Well, good morning. It's an honor to be with you this morning. My name is Ron Brown, and my wife and my um, youngest son are in the back here. And uh, I'm honored to have my mother-in-law, Rose and Rebecca, with us here this morning. And um, we're going to look at God's Word. Do you have your Bible? If you'll take your Bible and open it to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. We're going to be looking at this passage, and I'll kind of set the framework for it before we read it. In the first five chapters of Romans, what Paul has done is he has um, basically given an outline about God and His glory, His holiness, and that He's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of redemption for all who believe, the power of salvation, the power to change a person's life and to make a person right with God. From chapters 1 on, he talks about how we have exchanged the glory of God for a lie, how we have lived in, how we have lived out in corruption and sin and rebellion against God and desired things other than God, making idols for ourselves and desiring things that are abominations to God. And then he goes on to explain that even the Jewish heritage is not enough to save a person. And then he moves from there to chapter 3 saying that all of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled against God. And then he explains then that there is hope. There is what Christ has done for us and dying for our sins is what makes us right with God. And he moves into chapter 4 and 5 saying that our, our salvation is by justification by what Christ has done for us. By believing in the finished work of Christ on the cross for us, making us right with God. And then he moves from there, from 5 into 6. And that's where we're going to be. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may, be, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We ask that you would um, let your word be like a penetrating light into our souls, to examine the hidden places of our hearts, our lives, and that we would see you as you are, we would be able to see ourselves and be able to see what you have done for us in Christ. We ask also that your Holy Spirit would be our, our guide, our instructor, um, that your Holy Spirit would convict and woo us and lead us in how we should respond to you based upon what your word says to us. And so, Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would speak, that you would have control and have perfect sway over each one of us. And ask that you would use me, hide me behind the cross, and may it just be Christ who is presented, Christ who is glorified. And make all things clear, Father, for your name's sake and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. <coughs> When Robin and I came back from Botswana in 1993, getting ready to go to Hungary, um, going to their appointment with the mission board, um, Colorado Rockies were established that same year. And we were excited because Colorado had never had a baseball team that was part of the MLB, Major League Baseball. And so we were excited by this new franchise. And so when we came back, the first thing we did was we went and bought all the paraphernalia you could buy. I mean, we bought baseball caps, little soft, squishy baseballs, cups. Um, I even now have a Colorado Rockies bag I carry. It's my, it's my, women, you call it a purse, but men, we don't call it a purse. It's my man bag. And it's got Colorado Rockies on it. You'll see me toting it around. And we just want to identify with our team. We love our team. And, okay, I will admit we have years that we don't do so well, and we spend more time in the cellar or trying to get to the cellar than we are rising above the 500 mark. But we're making progress, and we're proud of our history. And 2007 was a great year for us. We don't talk about the World Series and our loss to the Red Sox, but we are, we are quite proud. We identify with the Colorado Rockies. I think they have a cool logo a cool emblem. And we just love the team. We know the, many of the players by name. Uh, Reynolds is trying to help me to learn some of the names that I can't pronounce. And it's, it's just neat following them. But it's also been neat watching this team because when new players come on board, how they suddenly bring new life to the team. Um, they, they have an identity with the team and they're excited and they're enthusiastic. And the older players are able to mentor them and help them as they're coming in and learning how the team operates and finding how they function together, their personalities, their skill sets, and their signals they give to each other. And it's been fun to watch. And 
players that are traded in from other teams, one thing you notice about them is if, if a player comes in from the Diamondbacks or from St. Louis or someplace else, you don't see them out on the field wearing their old team's jersey. You don't see them wearing the cap of their old teammates. They're wearing the Colorado Rockies cap. They're wearing the Colorado Rockies uniform. They identify with the team. And that's what you would expect. They're going to come in and they're going to support their team. And the same is true for any one of us who has been redeemed by the Savior and has experienced the lavish grace that God has poured out on us. Now, here in the first verse of Romans chapter 6, Paul addresses a charge being made against the doctrine of grace. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes a comment that where sin increased, grace is abandoned all the more. And there's a charge now being leveled. People are already thinking, hmm, if more sin means more grace, then I should be free to sin more so I can receive more grace. And there are people, believers and churches, that have basically taught this or have practiced this in such a way that has brought shame on the reputation of the church and shame upon the majesty and beauty of Christ. And we have heard stories of people doing that. There's a famous story in, in Russian history, Rasputin, the famous uh, Orthodox priest who was helping the, uh, the Tsarist family. And he basically taught this and he lived this. And you can see it in his lifestyle. He would preach to sin as much as you want and you could get more grace from God. And he lived a very revolting life. And he died a very sad way. But this is what he taught. And Paul is going to argue here that this antinomian teaching, which means you can do whatever you want, is counter to the gospel. And it is a violation of, of, of what Christ has done for us. It brings shame upon the gospel. And it is not consistent with the redeeming work of Christ. So after he gives a thorough ex explanation of how we are saved by faith and what Christ has done for us, Paul here in chapter 6 is going to lay out what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. We need to understand what grace is. It, it's not something that um, is earned by God not something you can win by um, looking good, being really smart, being nice to the guy next to you, um, doing a little bit extra on the side. It's not won by any effort. It's all of what God has done for us because we could not do it for ourselves. There's an acrostic that we use and I've liked it ever since I heard it because it helped me to remember it. And it's basically called Grace is God's Riches at Christ's Expense. It's all what Christ has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. So Paul addresses the question that he anticipated would be on the minds of, it, of the recipients of this letter. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
And he answers in verses 2 and 3 with a resounding, No way. No way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our union with Christ is seen in the fact that we identify with Jesus in baptism. Our identification with Jesus and baptism. Essentially what Paul is saying here in these first in verses two to four is that it is inconceivable for anyone to use this line of reasoning that because God is so lavished in his grace, that gives us a reason or an excuse to continue in sin. We cannot continue to live in the patterns of rebellion and unbelief that we once did because we have died to sin. We died to who we once were. You heard that popular expression that happens between couples who become estranged from each other and the relationship falls apart and they say, I am dead to you. I am dead to you. I remember some time ago seeing something that was like a far side cartoon and it shows two grim reapers with their black cloaks and holding that um, reaping stick in their hands and pointing their bony fingers at each other and they're both saying to each other, I am dead to you. You are dead to me. And that's the picture. We're to be we're dead to sin. We're dead to who we once were. In verse 3, Paul uses one of his favorite ways of asking a rhetorical question. Do you not know? Do you not know? You find this a lot in Paul's writings, especially in his letters to the Corinthians. It's like saying, "Don't you remember?" Don't you recall? We talked about this. We had a discussion about this. Don't you remember? Do you not know? Think logically with me. We went through the steps of the gospel and what it means in your life. Think it back through. So Paul's using this as his way of saying, think back. Think back. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Hey friends, don't you remember what your baptism signified? We've been baptized into Christ's death. Paul then clarifies the symbolism of baptism. We, have been, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It shows what happens to us when we trust in Christ. We died with Christ. So, in the baptistry, a person will be in there and they'll be standing up and then that person is then saying, I am dying to who I used to be I am, and I am dying with Christ. And then we put the person down into the water. We're burying them. So the person sounds saying, I've been buried with Christ. And then 
we raise them back up and we're saying, and that person is saying, I have been risen with Christ. I am a new person. The person you saw before, before I got my hair wet, that person is dead. The person with the wet hair, the person who's soaked, that's a new person. I'm walking in newness of life. I'm walking in the new life that Jesus Christ has given me. And everything that happens in baptism points back to what happened to Jesus at Calvary and then in the garden when he was buried and he rose again. And it's acknowledgement of our salvation on the basis of what Jesus did for us. It is what Christ has done for us that you and I could never accomplish for ourselves. No matter how hard we tried, we needed somebody else who was perfect to come and do what needed to be done for us. And Jesus was that one. And our baptism is our declaration of our identification with Christ. I am a follower of Christ now. Where Christ goes, I go. Christ went to the cross. That's my Savior on the cross. I died with Him there. I didn't literally die there, but symbolically what He did for me, that's where my... I, he died for me, and so my death is with Him. It's like what Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. Pastor Jeremy was talking earlier, baptism has no power or ability to save a person. There's nothing in that water that can make a person right with God. There's nothing in that water that can wash away the deepest stain in a person's soul. It can't take away the blemishes in a heart. There's nothing in that water that can do that. It has no special power to remove stains. We can fill it up with Clorox bleach as much as you like. It's not going to change what's in your heart. It's not going to make you right with God by getting in that water. It might make your skin look a little bit cleaner, but it's not going to change what's on the inside. Pastor Jeremy and others did not get over the water and say any type of magical incantations like from Hogwarts professors would do didn't do anything like that. They just filled a tub. It's just a demonstration. It's, it's an acknowledgement saying, here I am. I'm following Jesus. Jesus died for me and he rose again to give me new life. To take away the sin that was deep in my heart. To make me right with God. To give me a relationship with God. So I could know God and love Him. And enjoy Him forever. And I'm following Christ in that way. And the Bible speaks of going into the water. You're wondering, well, why don't we just took the water and just splashed it out on a bunch of people? Wouldn't that do it? Well, Baptists, we hold to the principle of going down into the water. It's what you would find when you're looking at uh, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. It says that Jesus went into the Jordan. John the Baptist was in the Jordan. And he baptized there. It was in the water. And also, <clears throat> think about dead bodies. Not a pleasant thought on a Sunday morning. But if somebody were to die, we wouldn't just take them lay them out on the parking lot and sprinkle dirt over them. 
you want to take that body and you want to dig a big hole and put that body down in the ground. You don't want to leave it up on the surface. It doesn't look very pretty after a few days. It's going to smell. It's coarse talk, but it gives you the idea of, of how important it is for baptism, of why we put a person in, down into the water. Because we're saying it's not... We're following the picture of an actual burial. What we'd actually do to a, a person's body, we would put that body underground. So we're following that same picture, that same practice. And baptism symbolizes death, burial, and a restoring of a person to a new life. Someone has described it, and I think it's an excellent description. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It shows what has happened on the inside. In Acts, we see that baptism was practically an instantaneous action following a person's profession of faith in Christ and repentance. In Acts chapter 2, people were convicted. They were cut to the heart by what Peter was preaching. The Holy Spirit was working powerfully through Peter. And they said, what must we do to be saved? They were crying out. You're telling us this, Peter. Now what must we do? What can we do to be saved? We know we're in the wrong. He says, repent and be baptized. And they said that very day, thousands were baptized. When Philip was out and the Holy Spirit led him to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch as the eunuch was leaving Jerusalem on his way back home, The eunuch was having trouble understanding the book of Isaiah. And Philip offered to help him understand it. And as they're going along, and he's explaining what Isaiah is about and pointing Isaiah to Christ and how Christ fulfilled everything Isaiah was talking about. Come upon water, and Philip goes, What prevents me from being baptized? He says, Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And they stopped. And he baptized him there in the water. And it communicates volumes. Um, It's a powerful testimony. And in some cultures, and in some areas, some families, to be baptized basically is telling your family, I am rejecting everything that you stood for. Now, a person may not necessarily have intentionally meant to say that to their family, but that's how the family interprets it. In Hungary, when we um, baptize people, Hungary, I must tell you, when we a person comes to Christ, it might take them a year or two before they'll be baptized. I think that's too long. I try to encourage them to, to move quicker. But the big issue in Hungary is my family. What will my family think? What will my family say? Because many of them were sprinkled, baptized as a baby. And for them then to turn to their mom and dad and say, I trusted in Christ and I want to follow Christ in baptism. Their, their parents don't know what to do with that. They're going, but we sprinkled you here in this church. Why now are you doing this? There's a, one young man that... Um, in our youth group at the church in Erdliga, uh, 
his mom came for the baptism, but his dad wouldn't come. But even though his mom was there, she wasn't she wasn't giving approval. She was just being supportive, but she really did not approve of what he was doing. And he, he got up before the baptism and shared his testimony. He cried. He talked about how Christ had powerfully changed him. He talked about all the sin in his life. He didn't necessarily talk about all the details. He just talked about how he had rebelled against God, how he had met Christ, and what Christ had done in him. And our family can tell you that God had done a, a spectacular work in his life. And then he was baptized after he gave his testimony. But his mom didn't approve, and his dad didn't come. There was a uh, businessman out in eastern Hungary, became a believer, professed faith in Christ, but then his family threatened him, basically saying, fine, we have the same business contacts you have. And if you choose to do this, if you choose to go forward with baptism, we will encourage all of your business, our contacts, to cut you off and have no further dealing with you. There is a cost in following Christ and often begins at baptism. But it's where we get our identification. And not only is our identification with Christ seen in baptism, it's also evident in our union with Christ. Identification in our union with Christ. Look at verses 5 to 11. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's important at this point to recall what has happened in our lives and the message of the gospel, what the gospel has done for us. We need to remember that we were, our condition before we met Jesus, we were in rebellion against Jesus. We were his enemy. We were throwing our fist at him, declaring war on him just by our sin, our actions. We were declaring treason against Him, not wanting Him, not desiring Him, not believing Him, and living in in disobedience. And it wouldn't necessarily be flagrant disobedience. It could just simply be the rolling of the eye, minimalizing our sin. Um, Well, okay, so I lied to this guy. It's not as bad as if I killed somebody. We minimalized things. And we loved our sin. And we hid in the darkness. And we did it because we didn't love God. And we didn't love His righteousness. And Jesus had a description for our condition. He called it slavery. 
He said in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin or a slave of sin. We thought we were free. We really did. Hey, I can do whatever I want. But we forged our own chains. Like Jacob Marley coming to Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, he talked about forging the chains in life. That's a picture of what you and I have done. We gave ourselves to our pleasures, to our desires, to doing what I want to do. My will is more important than what anybody else wants. My autonomy is more important than your autonomy. And in doing so, we shackled ourselves and we kept forging additional chains to it. And we became bound to our sin, to our passion. And we couldn't free ourselves. Now, you can make efforts at self-improvement. You know, you could put glitter on the chains, make them look prettier. Spray paint them. Put little glitter bottles on them. But you can't remove them. And we try to minimize our sin. And we make efforts to make ourselves look better. Or we get the latest health books and figure out ways to improve ourselves. And one of two things happens with those. Either we become proud at our success and we show off to other people and become arrogant in our heart or we give way to shame and failure because we can't do it. We needed a hero. We needed someone who would step in and rescue us from ourselves and bring us into God's, the Father's presence. And that is just what Jesus did. By dying in our place and being raised alive, Christ broke our chains of bondage to sin and canceled sin's power over us. The greatest word today, and it's proclaimed in the Bible, Jesus Christ is our bondage breaker. He breaks the power of sin over us. It does not matter what, where you've been, what your sin was, or what you're struggling with today. He can break the bondage. He came to set you free. When we trust in Christ and what He did for us on the cross, everything Jesus experienced was applied to us. We have been united with Him. Our old nature has been crucified with Christ, which makes sin powerless in our lives. That verse says we are now free, no longer slaves to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 7. And the resurrection. Christ being raised from the dead. Oftentimes, if we're not careful, we think of that as just some historical event that happened three days after Christ was buried on the, buried in the tomb and the stone rolled against it. And just something we commemorate at Easter. The resurrection applies to us every day. It really, really does. It's not just a one-time event and something that we will enjoy at the future point 
when we too will be raised and to enjoy glorified bodies with Jesus, it applies to us today. We shall be united in a resurrection like His. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. So if we have died with Christ, we believe, we are firmly convinced that we will also live with Him. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy and Susan encountered the risen Aslan after witnessing his death at the hands of the White Witch at the stone table. And they are amazed to see that Aslan is alive. But they're confused because they saw him killed. And now he's alive. And Aslan explains to them that an innocent person who is murdered on the stone table would actually cause death to reverse itself. And so for the believer, sin and death, because of what Jesus did for us, has no power over us because Jesus has removed the tyranny from us that they've exerted. Okay. So now it's a good time to stop and say, okay, so what? So what? How does this speak to where you and I are today? Well, consider what Paul is saying and think it through. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus was sinless. He never sinned. And as C.S. Lewis observed, death is reversed when an innocent person is killed. You see, when you and I commit a sin, like our first parents, all of a sudden they were placed under a curse. And the curse was death. The curse was death. And you and I live under that curse. We inherited it. It's in our DNA. But sin and death doesn't apply to Jesus. Sin and death applies to us because of what our first parents did. But it doesn't apply to Jesus because he was sinless. Sin and death could not hold him in the grave. It could not keep him in the tomb. could not hold him. Psalmist says, your Holy One will not see decay. Jesus didn't see decay. He rose victoriously three days later. In our union with Christ, sin and death are rendered powerless and we are set free to live for God's pleasure and glory. That is why Paul can so confidently say in Galatians 2.20, which I quoted earlier and I'll say it again, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And at the end of Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Because Christ lives, we also have been raised to walk in newness of life. 
because of our identification, our union with Christ, sin is powerless over us. Jesus broke its chains, and now we are free to live in obedience and holiness because Jesus redeemed us and made us holy. And again comes that phrase that Paul would use back in verse 2. Do you not know? Do you not know what Christ has done for you? Do you not know your new standing with God? Do you not know your new status, your your new status, and what you have inherited in Christ? And then verse eleven. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you and I have meditated and know well the gospel and apply it to ourselves every day. we will be able to resist Satan's temptations, the world's appeals, and the pleadings of our old nature. Because the battle begins here in the mind. It really starts here. Based on our new identity in Christ, united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection, we must be thinking in a new way. We have to think according to the gospel and that we must reckon ourselves dead to our sin and alive to God recall who you were and where Christ found you where were you when Christ found you think about it where were you when Christ found you think about how he came and rescued you think back on the cross what he did for you meditate on it Meditate on what Christ did by taking your place. He died for you. He took the wrath that was intended for you. And when he cried out, it is finished, it was done. He took all of it. And when he said it is finished, it was done. And he was buried, and then he rose from the grave. Three days later. Know that you were purchased by the blood of Christ, and that you are no longer your own. You are his, and the Father calls you to be holy, just as he is holy. You were purchased at a great price. And because of Jesus, we have been called up and placed on God's team. I love the analogy of earlier. Because that's that's exactly where I'm at with this. We put on the uniform of Christ. It is not on the basis of anything inherent in us, but solely because of the mercy and grace that God has lavished on us in Christ Jesus, that we can put on the righteousness of Christ. You see, on the cross, Jesus took our old soiled garments. He took them on Himself. And at the cross, He gave us His righteousness. We wear Christ's righteousness. We are free. This is how God sees us now. He sees us not with our sold old self. He sees us as we are now in Jesus. So you've been traded. You brought on to a new team, friend. You were on Satan's team. You, you lived for yourself. You made your own contract. Or you thought you made your own contract. 
You thought your your standing was pretty good. Your stats were good. No. No, you're you've been traded onto a new team now and you're wondering how did I get on this team? I wasn't that good of a slugger. I wasn't that good in the outfield. I wasn't that good in the infield. I did a lot of good on the bench. God says, No. I'm you're on my team now. You take off that old uniform, you're putting on this one. And here's a new cap. And you're in my dugout. And I'll put the plays out there for you. You're going to be on my team. And not playing by yourself. you got all your teammates out there with you. And you're going to be encouraging and helping each other. This is how God sees us. This is your new identity in Christ. This is how He sees you now. Not as you used to be, but as you are now in Christ. And Jesus calls us to wear the uniform. You know what the uniform looks like? It looks like a cross. He says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what the uniform looks like. And now we're wearing his uniform and we need to be in the game. These are your teammates. And our identification is also found with Jesus in our obedience. Romans 6, verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. There's a picture here I like. It's like giving our old nature the pink slip. You know what the pink slip is? They still use the word pink slip in America anymore. It's where a person gets fired or laid off. They give them the pink slip. Well, that's basically what you're doing with the old nature. You see... You kind of have the civil war going on inside of you. And when you go to Romans chapter 7, you see the civil war. Paul describes it. And if you're in Christ, you understand what I'm talking about. Because you had this old nature of who you used to be. This guy never went away. He's still trying to tag along with you. Still trying to hang around, trying to be best buds with you. Trying to say, don't you remember what it was like on our team? You know how much fun we had? We didn't go anywhere. Yeah, but it was wasn't it fun? Now you're now you're in Christ. You have this new nature, and you're wearing Christ's righteousness. God's name is written on your heart. You're wearing His uniform, and there's this little civil war going on inside of you. The old nature is trying to appeal to you to come back, to come back. And you're going, but why? Why should I go back? That should be the question that should be going through your mind. Why should I go back? Look what Christ has done for me. This is who I am now in Christ. You didn't do anything for me. I'm dead to you. I'm dead to you. I, um, when I first became a believer, someone from church gave me a, a booklet written by Ralph Neighbor called Survival Kit for New Christians. And in it, it had a picture in there when it got to this section about the two natures inside of you battling it out, 
it showed the guy who's a pilgrim walking with Jesus and his old nature comes back to, to bug him and it's this ugly little furry guy like a demonic little creature coming back and the guy points his finger and says I don't trust you I don't trust you and that's how we should be we don't trust who we were before it, we get the pink slip you don't live here anymore so clean out your desk you don't work for me anymore vacate the premises you're fired Mercy Me song describes it well so long self well it's been fun but I have found somebody else so long self there's there's just no room for two so you are going to have to move so long self don't take this wrong but you are wrong for me farewell oh well goodbye don't cry so long self the verbs in these verses are present active imperatives you know what an imperative is it's a command it's something that we are to do and the verbs here are let not sin reign do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness and the implication is this is a daily ongoing action day after day moment by moment sin will continually seek to reassert itself in our lives making appeals for us to submit to its desires and Paul understands what's going on inside of you so he says to the Romans and to us resist sin don't let sin regain the throne of your life. Don't offer any part of your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. If you go look up this word instruments, there's another way it can be translated. And it's interesting. Interesting. It can also be translated as weapons. Now, if you think of that, you really do see a civil war taking place inside. The old nature is wanting you to take the members of your body, your fingers, your hands, your legs, your feet, your eyes, your brain, your sexual organs, your stomach, and wanting them to become agents for it and an insurrection against your, who you are now in Christ, to unseat Christ from the throne of your heart. Interesting analogy. That was something brought out by John Piper. He said that that's what he saw from this, was that sin is constantly plotting to regain control of our life and uses our desires. And our desires are not bad desires. The desire to eat, to sleep, to enjoy a nice cup of coffee, you know, to go running, to ride a bike, those are not bad desires. But the old nature will come along and will try to twist things around so that we use those desires not for the glory of God, but to serve who we used to be and to serve sin in our lives. So your members can become weapons of unrighteousness when yielded to sin's control. And we need to remember what John Owen wrote. Great um, Puritan wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you and I are not actively engaged in putting sin to death in our life, it will reassert itself and it will take control. 
It really is a choice. You know, before when you were under slavery to sin, you didn't have any choice. But now you do. And the appeal is, don't submit to who you used to be, but instead yield the members of your body to God. Because this is the truth, folks. We're either going to serve sin or we're going to serve the Lord. Before we met Jesus, we were enslaved. And now there's this ongoing internal conflict, battle between who we were, our old nature, and who we are now in Christ. And that's why Paul makes this appeal. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You are not a hapless victim forever bound to who you used to be before Christ entered your life, you do have a choice. And not only do you have this ability to choose, but God has granted you the grace and the power to obey. Remember, Christ is your bondage breaker. He sets you free. Do you know this hymn? There's a stanza from it that sticks with me. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Written by Charles Wesley. It's a wonderful description of what Christ has done for us. Are you struggling today? You know, we don't talk about it much, but Christians go through struggles and then we're um, periods where we're enslaved to various parts of we're enslaved to sins in our life and we, we're stuck there. And then we start hiding it because we don't want anybody to know what's going on inside of us. Because then I, won't, I won't look as good to you as I did last Sunday because I'm struggling with this thing. And I don't want you to think less of me than you did before. So the question I would have for you is, are you ready, ready to be honest with God and with your brothers and sisters? Um, to say, you know, I'm trapped. I've got these areas in my life that I don't know what to do with. And it, it could be a variety of things. But I'm, I want to tell you that you don't have to stay that way. He is your bondage breaker. He does set people free. He does it every day. He's doing it this very hour. And no matter what the sin is, it could be narcissism. You know, it's all about me. Uh, could be unbelief, bitterness, lust, pride, coveting. Jesus will set you free. He says the truth will set you free. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Bring your despair and your grief to the cross. Cry out for His help and repent. Your road to freedom from sin's tyranny begins here. First, know what Christ has done for you and what it means for you now, your new position in Jesus. And one of the things that I do every day, that I have to do for myself every day, and you need to do it too, because you got all these voices in your head, and the voices aren't always very helpful. I have to remind myself of what Jesus has done for me. I have to tell myself the gospel. And I say it often back to him in prayer, saying, Thank you, God, for saving me. You did for me what I couldn't do for myself. You need to preach the gospel to yourself each day. 
You're going to have to be the one that overcomes the other voices in your head and allow the Holy Spirit to have the ruling voice and remind yourself of what Jesus did. You need to also acknowledge that your identity is in Christ. That means that you are dead to sin and you've been raised in newness of life. You owe nothing to your old nature. I mean, what has it done for you? Really, it, it brought you death. It brought, it brought you estrangement from God. You owe it nothing. You are a new creature in Christ. So, kill it. Send it away. Do it today, tomorrow, day after tomorrow. And you're probably going to do it in another hour. It's a constant battle. But it can be won. And then yield all of your members to Christ. Everything. And exercise, in doing that, exercise daily repentance, turning from sin and turning to Christ. And we're going to finish with verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay. Paul gave commands in verses 12 and 13. Now in verse 14, he's giving you promise of hope. And it's interesting that Paul would conclude the passage this way. And you're probably wondering, okay, well, okay, grace is nice. That's how I got saved. How does it save me now? How does it grace help me now? How does grace prevent sin from having dominion over me now and tomorrow and the next day? Paul, what does this look like? How does this work? Okay, remember that sin's power over you has been broken because of Christ's substitutionary atonement on our behalf. It's a gift of grace. Now, if you have to think about the law for just a moment, and we'll come back to grace. The law has a very good purpose. The law is not bad. The law does several things. First of all, the law shows us who God is and His righteousness. It shows us how holy and righteous He is, how set apart He is from us. Because the law deals with things that we don't even want to think about. We don't even want to do. But that's what He desires of us because of who He is. And it also shows us where we have fallen, where we have fallen short of God's glory and our need for a Savior. So the law serves a very good purpose. It, it points us to Christ. It says... And you look at the law and you see what it says. You say, I can't do that. I can't do that. Well, you're right. You can't do that. You're not able to do that. And you're thinking, oh, but it's hopeless then. I'm, I'm in trouble. I have no help. I'm in despair. No. That's where grace comes in. Because the law doesn't have any ability to make us fulfill its expectations. It doesn't have the power or the ability to do so. But grace does. Grace gives us the power to live the new life. Grace gives us the power to say no. There's a beautiful verse in Titus, I think it's Titus 2.14, that grace gives us the ability to say no and to exercise self-discipline. I like what F.F. Bruce says. He puts it this way. He says, the law demanded obedience, but grace applies the will and the power to obey. Hence, 
Grace breaks the mastery of sin as law could not. So, know what Christ has done for you in your new position in Christ. You're standing before God the Father. Acknowledge your identity and your union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Yield and submit the members of your body to Christ. And Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to daily follow Him. Put on the uniform. Put on the uniform. And be who Christ called you to be. Your teammates need you. We need each other. And I'm going to come back to the question again. Are you struggling this morning? Are you struggling? We were talking earlier today, um, this morning um, during our study time about being a part of the church. And one of the beautiful things about being part of the church is we help each other. We identify with each other. We help each other. There's accountability. There's encouragement. There's support. There's affirmation. There's teaching and exhortation. And we need each other. And so if I'm struggling with an area with a sin in an area of my life, and I can't seem to break free from that, that's where a trusted brother or sister can come alongside of me, hold me accountable, but also at the same time walk with me through that process of finding the ability to say no to sin and to walk in the newness of life that Christ has for me. To exercise discipline and to be free from the shackles of that sin. It could be bitterness. It could be a pride issue. It could be lust. It could be anger. It could be a critical judgmental spirit. We need each other. I can help you. You can help me. So I'm going to invite you this morning to come. To cry out to the Lord. And cry out for grace and mercy. And ask Jesus to help you. And I promise you, He is eager to do that as you turn and repent. As you come to Him. That song is so beautiful. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. He is the chain breaker. He is the bondage breaker. And He welcomes you to come and walk in the light and be honest with Him and be ready to take action. I invite you to come do that this morning. And also, if you don't know Christ and you're here and you're hearing all this and you're going, there's something this morning that resonates with me and I don't know what it is. I feel the Spirit speaking to me. I don't even know what that is. He talked about the Holy Spirit. What is that? But something is drawing me this morning. Something is telling me that I need to respond to this. That I I need a Savior. I need to be set free. I'm in bondage. I'm separated from God. I need a rescue. I need a Savior. I need someone to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I need someone... To take all of the sin in my life and remove it from me. My friend, I, I promise you, Christ is here. He died on the cross for your sins. And come this morning, call out to Him. And He will take your sin and He'll make you new. He'll wash you. 
wash your heart. He'll give you a new heart. He'll make you new. And He'll bring you into His Father's family. And then you get to enjoy all those wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who will love and help encourage you in your new walk with Christ. I invite you this morning to come and to trust Him. As we close, I want to just pray for us. Heavenly Father, I I come now and ask that You would um, bless this church, that um, You would encourage the members. And as we you were to celebrate baptism, may we again see what the picture of what Christ has done. And may we rejoice in it and also at the same time preach the gospel to ourselves and to realize that it is in the power of the gospel and by your grace that we can be free, that Jesus sets us free. You didn't just come and save us to leave us as we are. You came that we might walk in newness of life, that we might be free from who we used to be and that we wouldn't have anything that would draw us away from you, but that we would be willing to go into the fight to pursue you and to know you and to know that you have provided everything that we needed for this fight so we can put sin to death and we can pursue you and yield ourselves to you. And Father, for whoever might be here who is thinking about these things for the first time, Father, draw them to yourself this morning that they might come and trust Jesus to turn from their sins and to say, I want Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord, as my King. To take away all my sin, to put it on the cross, and to give me that newness of life that I so desperately need. To give me a new heart and a new family. Thank you, Father. Thank you for providing for all of our needs in Christ. As you be honored and glorified in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.